0: Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, this letter of Paul to Timothy is his farewell address to Timothy as a disciple in the faith, as a son in the faith, beloved, and he's encouraging him to fight the good fight of faith until the end. Paul is likely about to die as we read in chapter 4, and this is his exhortation to Timothy, his spiritual son. We'll do chapter 1, verse 1, 1 to 18. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and a teacher. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Figalus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. At the outset, when Paul the Apostle addresses Timothy, he does as is customary in the letter writing of that day, that is to identify who the sender is at the very beginning. And Paul the Apostle, he is an apostle, that is he is commissioned to do ministry on behalf of Christ Jesus and for Christ Jesus and to proclaim Christ Jesus. He doesn't preach himself, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And this commission comes by the will of God. It's not Paul who went and decided somewhere in an obscure place in, into the forest or into a cave and then suddenly decided that he's going to start a religion. No, it was by the will of God. God miraculously, publicly, in the middle of the day, confronted him in Acts chapter 9, with him and other men who also saw this miracle occur. And the Lord Jesus revealed his will to him. He saved him and revealed his will that he should be an apostle of Christ. And all of this is according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. There is a word of promise. The gospel is a gospel of promise and life which is only found in Christ Jesus. Because we have the sentence of death on us, we need the life, that, the life of God and that life is only found in Christ Jesus. Not in anyone else, not in any other religious leader, only in Christ, who is both Son of God and Son of man. verse two. His addressee is Timothy. We know something of Timothy from Acts chapter 16, where it is said that his father was a Greek and his mother was a Jewess. And we know that from verse five that his mother taught him the scriptures. This is Timothy from a mixed background. We don't know how he came to Christ, but we do know that it was because of his grandmother and mother's influence, and also the Apostle Paul later in life, that he was built up in the faith. He heard and learned the faith from his grandmother and mother, and then came to Christ, in spite of the fact that his father was from a Greek background. This Timothy is now to Paul, at the end of Paul's life, nearing his life, because he's awaiting and expecting execution, his beloved son. Paul, the apostle, had invested himself. He had spent much time and ministry with Timothy to build him up in the faith so that he might be a godly disciple. As Paul was seeking to be faithful to Christ, as he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, that imitate me just as I also do Christ. We are to imitate Christ. The Apostle Paul and Timothy was doing so, and this is why he became a dear and beloved son to Paul. He wishes him all that we need, all that we need from God. We need daily, every moment of the day. We need grace, mercy and peace. These only come in the true sense from God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Grace, mercy and peace in a true and ultimate spiritual, eternal sense do not come from any other source do not come at all no other religion no other faith no other proponent of philosophy it doesn't come from anyone else though there are many people who grope for it who scatter here and there who pull out their hair in order to try to find grace mercy and peace they cannot find the true grace mercy and peace unless it comes from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord now verses 3 to 7 the Apostle Paul explains what he knows and considers fondly in Timothy. Verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. The apostle is thankful to God. This thankful spirit is what we all should have, when we think about the people of God, especially the people of God with whom we pray, with whom we study the Word, with whom we encourage uh, and, and build up each other in worship, in fellowship, and in service as well when there are needs, we thank God because of what we see God doing in the people of God. And here he says that he knows that Timothy is such uh, one such who deserves this kind of thankfulness to God because of Timothy's faith. Now, Paul the Apostle also identifies that this God that he thanks is not a new God, is not a strange God, is not a false God, because being from uh, the Jewish background that Paul had, and even Timothy had from his mother's side, they could easily be accused of inventing a new religion, a strange teaching, a false doctrine. However, he says here that he serves this God, the true God, with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did. The way Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and all the other patriarchs and matriarchs of the Old Testament, he serves God, the true God, just as they do. This is not a new faith. It's the same faith. It's the same gospel. The gospel of the Old Testament is the same gospel as the gospel of the New Testament. But also, he is constantly remembering Timothy. He knows that even though Timothy is beloved, and even though Timothy has faith, and even though Timothy embraces the true faith, it's necessary for Timothy to have intercession. Not only for Timothy, but all of us. It's necessary, even though we are growing in the faith, to continually need intercession from others. This is why we ought to pray. We ought to pray for one another, be mindful of one another, and be thankful for one another. Also, verse 4, he longs to see Timothy because he recalls Timothy's tears and also that he may be filled with joy. Timothy, when they, depart, when they parted from one another, Timothy wept over that. He wept over that because he wasn't sure if he would see Paul again, most likely. He wasn't sure when it would be if he would see him again, and he did not want to part from him. So, He's he's thankful that Timothy had a sincere concern and love for the Apostle Paul, which the Apostle had also for Timothy. And when they think of their fond and mutual friendship, it brings him joy. It brings him joy. This is the kind of joy that we need to have. We need to maintain it, sustain it, and inculcate this among all of us. This is the kind of relationship we should have, that... When we are together, we are so built up in the faith that it brings joy to think of seeing each other again. Now, the benefit, or how was it that he was trained? Verse 5, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it is in you as well. He's sure, because of Timothy's testimony, because of his life, that he has the same faith that... His grandmother and mother taught him. They both taught him the faith. They were godly women who knew the Scriptures. They knew the Old Testament. That is the Scriptures that they would have primarily known. And they taught Timothy those Scriptures. Those Scriptures have whatever it takes for salvation. In 2 Timothy 3.14, it says... You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. These sacred writings are the writings of the Old Testament that Timothy was taught primarily from his grandmother and mother. They taught him. This shows that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. This is what Timothy was taught, and that's why he came to faith and believed in Christ Jesus, based on the Old Testament. Verse 6. Not only does he have faith, but he has what is necessary to carry out that faith. In order to execute what's necessary in the faith, he was granted, in verse 6, Of gift of God through the apostolic ministry of prayer. This we also have seen in 1 Timothy 4.14. 4.14, it says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed upon you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery, or by the elders. This is what happened. Paul and the others laid hands on Timothy, and God granted a gift of God. That gift should not lay dormant. That gift should not be asleep. That gift needs to be exercised. God has granted to all of us spiritual gifts in one way or another upon our conversion, and those gifts ought not to be stifled. They need to be exercised so that God is glorified and the people of God edified. Verse 7, But Timothy has a hindrance. Timothy has a hindrance. By implication, the apostle says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Though Timothy had the true faith taught him, and it was in him, he believed it, and though he was gifted by God to carry out whatever God uh, intended for him to do in ministry, Timothy had something that stifled him. It hindered him. And that was a spirit of timidity, a spirit of fear. Timothy was conscientious about things, perhaps circumstances, perhaps people, their reaction, whether they would like him or not, whether he would have a good uh, and large following or not. There are many things and many reasons why he could have been uh, filled with the spirit of timidity. But Paul says that doesn't come from God. We cannot say that it's good and right to be fearful, to be anxious, to be wondering what people think. Wondering about our future and our circumstances, we should not. We should not have any kind of fear like that because God doesn't give it. Now, if God doesn't give it, it must come from Satan, or the flesh, or the world. The world, the flesh, and the devil—they militate against us, uh, against us constantly. Ephesians two one to three explains. But what comes from God? Power, love, and discipline. Power, love, and discipline. The power of God to overcome anything and everything. Philippians 4.13, For I can do all things through Him, that is Christ, who gives me strength. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. God also gives us love. He assures us of His love. 1 John 4.18, Perfect love casts out fear. Casts out the fear that we should not have of anyone, any circumstance, any uncertainties, any decisions none whatsoever. The love of God. For I am convinced, Paul says, that whether it's height or depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have that. We love because he first loved us. And so because he loved us and he loved us first, he will not cease loving us. We always have his love, his mercy, or as He explained in verse 2, grace, mercy, and peace. We always have this available to us from God. Also, discipline. Discipline or self-control. Self-control, sober-mindedness, the ability to handle things in a way that is with wisdom, without erratic behavior, without overdoing it, without being anxious about things. This discipline is given by God. These are available, and Timothy needed to be reminded of it, because though he was gifted by God and he had the gift of faith, verses five and six, still he was fearful. And this is also characteristic of many of us. We have what is necessary. Second Peter chapter one says, "God has granted to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have the Word of God externally, and we have the spirit of God internally. We have all that's necessary, so we should not be fearful, but trust God's power, love, and discipline. Now, the Apostle Paul is not speaking in a vacuum. In verses 8 to 12, he explains that he's not speaking as though he is in a fairyland in a different situation where he has a pie in the sky. He is dreaming and living a different way than what he's expecting of Timothy. No, no what Paul experiences, Timothy experiences, and the church generally experiences. And that is, we have this temptation when we have the onslaught of the enemy, the onslaught of falsehood attacking us. We could be ashamed. We could shrink back. We could shrink away and say, no, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to stand up. I'm not going to hold forth the gospel. I'm not going to fight the good fight of faith. But Paul now tells us that he didn't do that as a model for Timothy. Verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. You see, Timothy and all of us, we could be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. We could be ashamed of Christ whenever somebody identifies us as Christian. Whenever we take a stand for truth and righteousness, that could happen. But we're we're to resist it. Also, even of me, his prisoner. Some people are even ashamed to name the name of Paul, the apostle. To cite Paul, the apostle's letters in order to defend the truth. Some people are ashamed of Paul. Even today they are. But Paul says, don't be ashamed of the Lord and don't be ashamed of the Apostle Paul, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. We are all called to suffer according to the power of God in promoting the gospel. The gospel according to the power of God. This gospel is worthy of suffering. It's our life. It's our eternal life. Therefore, if God's not ashamed of us, if God's not ashamed of us, Hebrews two twelve and 13. If he's not ashamed of us, why should we be ashamed of him? Right. He is the one who should be ashamed of us. Right. And we should never be ashamed of him. He's our creator and redeemer. And he says here, do not be ashamed in such a way. Because it is the gospel who saves us. And this gospel that saves us is according to the power of God. The power of God. We were unworthy. We were incapable. We were unable, because of our deadness and corruption, to save ourselves. So it took the power of God to ignite us. It took the power of God to awaken us from the dead. That's what it took. It took the power of God. Now, this power of God, though it was active in time and space, in our life, in a particular moment in life, whether we were 10, 20, 30, 50 years old, whatever point in life God saved us, that's when it, the power was manifested. And we were saved by that. Yet, it was not a second thought, it was not an 11th hour decision by God. Verse 9 explains He saved us and called us with a holy calling. That means it's a unique and special calling. Not a calling that he's given to everyone. That means it's external, uh, not external, but internal calling of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus said in, in John 6:45. Everyone who hears and learns from the Father comes to me. That special calling is this holy calling of verse 9. This is the kind of calling that God gave to us. Not according to our works, because they are corrupt works. And all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And he saves us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. This was granted to us in Christ from all eternity. Before the foundation of the world, God intended to save us, his unique and special people, to redeem us, his sheep, his elect, his chosen ones his children, and now we belong to him. Now, if he decided to do this before the world began, then will he not sustain us? Will he not help us? Will he not continue to give us his powerful grace so that we overcome and that our faith is maintained until the end? Our faith is the victory that overcomes the world, 1 John 5, 4. Isn't that what is implied by this? Yes, if God decided and decreed this by His own purpose and grace before the foundation of the world, He'll sustain us through this world and ensure that we meet Him face to face. There's no losing our salvation. Therefore, maintain it. Maintain it and hold it forth with great courage. That's the point. Now, verse 10. Verse 10, what we are now experiencing. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, in history, Christ has appeared. What the prophets predicted, the apostles announced, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, to save us. He came to do that and to abolish death. The the, the death of that entered the world because of, because of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 is the death that Jesus came to destroy. He came to destroy death, the devil, and all that is corrupt and against God. He came to destroy it, and he did so. He did so in terms of an initial action, the, that is, the cross and the resurrection. That is the basis for him to destroy the works of the devil and to abolish death, the cross and the resurrection. But it will be fulfilled in a full sense in the future. However, in the meantime, he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He was raised from the dead. He performed miracles. His apostles did so. They they preached in front of crowds of people. Jesus showed himself alive with many convincing proofs, Acts 1, verses 1 to 3. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he displayed himself to more than 500 brethren at one time. So he brought and proved by his resurrection from the dead that he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He manifested all of this by his life, his death, his resurrection, and his appearances. Now, this is the unique gospel, verses 11 and 12, that we have. Verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. He was appointed. He did not appoint himself. He was appointed, meaning God appointed him. Specifically, Christ did in Acts chapter 9. Christ appointed him to be a preacher, apostle, and teacher. To go about... Here and there, both, uh, both in public and in private, to preach the gospel, to persuade men to argue, to reason with them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We must repent of sin and believe in him for our salvation. This is what he's commissioned to do by God. Verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. It is for this reason, for the reason we just read. He knows that he can trust Christ. He knows that he can trust whatever he has given to Christ. That's why he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed because he knows whom he has believed. He has believed in the true and living God through his Son, Christ. And that he is also convinced. And he's convinced that what he has entrusted to him, he's entrusted his soul to him. Right. He's entrusted his soul to him, and he will guard his soul, God will guard the soul of the Apostle Paul until the last day. Amen. Until he meets him face to face. He says in chapter 4, verse 18, 2 Timothy four eighteen. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He's imprisoned and he's likely about to die and he says that God will bring him safely to His heavenly kingdom. Yes, they're going to destroy his body, but not his soul. They will crush his body, but not crush his soul. His soul is safe. And not only is his soul safe and will go safely to God's heavenly kingdom, but one day there will be a day of resurrection and God will overcome the crushing of his human body. And he'll display it in front of everyone because every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what should be done in the meantime? 13 and 14. In the meantime, until that day, what should Paul do, Timothy do, and all of us? Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Retain the standard of sound words. Sound words. What are these sound words? It's the same as that which is in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. These, the, the faith and love that's in Christ Jesus must be the gospel, because he's already been talking about the gospel. He's explaining it in other terms, that it is the faith and love in Christ Jesus that is the same as the sound words. Now, these sound words and faith and love, gospel in Christ Jesus, being together, are that which produces godliness. Are that which produces godliness. I say this because there are some proponents of the view that the sound words are different from the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, whether or not based on this text. They have this theology that you can have sound doctrine, sound words, without having uh, the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, and you can still be a Christian. That is, they say they have great orthodoxy, but they don't live it. They believe all the right things, but they don't live it. According to the scriptures, you can't be that way. If you truly believe the right doctrine, then it's going to, whether it's little by little and sometimes by leaps and bounds, it's going to transform you. It's going to conform you to the image of Christ. You cannot be stagnant. You cannot regress and then deny the faith and have no concern for the faith, have no concern for the things of God. It doesn't work that way. Having sound words and having faith and love in Christ Jesus go together. They are the same thing, describing the same issue. That is, if you truly believe the gospel, it will lead to godliness. It must lead to godliness. It cannot do otherwise. Sound doctrine equates to sound living. Sound living has as its basis sound doctrine. They go together. You cannot separate them verse 14 Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you Now he returns to what he's supposed to do with this guard it This is why he's speaking of fighting the good fight of faith Fight the good fight of faith It's necessary as he says in chapter 6 verse 12 Fight The good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The Holy Spirit who dwells in us will help us guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. This is what he means when he says, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The Holy Spirit will empower us to guard the gospel that's been entrusted to us. Since it has been entrusted to us, we ought to Protect it. Guard it. Make sure that we truly believe the, the gospel and that we truly announce the gospel to others. People need to know it. An example of this guarding of the gospel is in chapter, is 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Those who go astray from the faith, they embrace this worldly and empty chatter and false arguments, opposing arguments, and false knowledge. That's what they promote. And when that's promoted, they are led astray from the faith. That means that what's been entrusted to him was the true faith, the gospel. That needs to be protected. This is a constant battle of the Christian life. Because in, in our minds, in the minds of our loved ones, in the minds of, of churches, in the minds of the culture, everyone is naturally opposed to the will of God. Everyone is naturally militating against the things of God. That's why we all, as individuals and, and collectively, we all need to fight against it, guard against it, Protect the gospel. Live it out and preach it. Do all of this. It's all necessary for us as a soldier. This is the analogy as a soldier. And he'll speak more of that analogy in chapter 2. Now, not everyone adheres. Not everyone adheres, but there are a few who do adhere to this gospel. Verse 15. You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Figalus and Hermogenus. Notice that. That all who are in Asia turned away from me. When he says all, it could be that there's a great number of people who were in Asia, and by Asia, this use of the term in the first century is likely a western part of Asia Minor, which was called Asia. Today, when we say Asia, we could mean anything from West Asia, North Asia, East Asia, South Asia, Southeast Asia. We could mean any and all those places. But at that time, it was likely the, the area which is in modern Turkey or Western modern Turkey, the nation of Turkey today. That when he preached the gospel there, that there were people who professed the faith under the ministry of Paul, but then they turned away from him. They denied him. They rejected him. They were apostates and heretics against the Apostle Paul. And then he names two of them, probably because these were the instigators. These were the two ringleaders of this defection, Figulus and Hermogenes. He names their names. He names their names probably because they led this rebellion against the Apostle. Notice, he named names. He named names because they were the perpetrators of the poison. They were the ones who uh, concocted this potion and fed people with it, made them drink this potion, this potion that was destructive. He had to name them so people could know and then avoid them. He does this, by the way. He names two false teachers in every chapter of 2 Timothy. Of course, he does so in other places. But in this letter that we are studying, in chapter 1, he names two. In chapter 2, he names two. In chapter 3, he names two. And in chapter 4, he names two. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's not a sin. In fact, it is righteousness to name names when you're talking about false teachers. Now, it wasn't as though everyone defected. Notice he also names the name of a true and righteous disciple. It says in verse 16, May the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus. Now he, Onesiphorus, was at Ephesus, but he also wasn't ashamed of the Apostle Paul to visit Paul imprisoned in Rome. He was not ashamed to do so. He had to expose himself. He would have been exposed to ridicule, both from Romans and Jews. Why are you visiting this man? Who is this Paul, the Apostle, that you call an Apostle? Who is this Paul? He, he's nobody, and yet you have come to visit him and to help him and to encourage him. He exposed himself, and that was good. So Paul wishes for him To receive mercy, verse 16 and verse 18. For him to receive mercy from God on the day of judgment. Because on the day of judgment, the day of judgment is for us as believers going to be not only a day of meeting Christ, not only a day of our vindication, not only a day of confirmation that we are saved, that when we belong to Christ, but it will also be a day of rewards. We will be issued rewards. Some are more faithful than others as believers. As Jesus said in Luke 19, there was the one slave who was faithful and he received authority over ten cities. Another one was faithful over five cities. And then another one who claimed to be a believer, claimed to be a a slave, but didn't act like a good slave. The one uh, talent of money that he was given, or mina, was taken away from him and given to the one who had the ten, who received the ten cities. So, these rewards are what... Paul wishes for Onesiphorus and even the household of Onesiphorus, the beneficiaries of his righteousness, which also happens in many cases, that because there is a righteous man, head of the house, that righteousness spills over and benefits those who are in the house. It benefits them so that they receive spiritual and even material benefits because God provides for his people. Both spiritual and material benefits that help the household because of the righteous, godly man of the house. This is the apostle's uh, identification. Here, too, it's good and necessary for us to name righteous men so that people know, by example, who to follow, who to emulate. We need to know who a righteous man is to by name. So name righteous men and name wicked men. Wicked men will pay on the day of judgment and righteous men will receive not only salvation, but they will receive their rewards also on the day of judgment. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says.